On the same day, chapter 8, verse 1, King Ashurus gave the estate of Haman, the adversary of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Now Mordecai had come before the king, for Esther had revealed how he had related to her. And the king then removed his signet ring and the very one that he had taken back from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther designated Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's estate. So continue role reversals. Now Mordecai is vice regent. Now he's getting the signet ring. Now he's living in the house. Haman is impaled on his gallows that was for Mordecai, and Mordecai is now living in the house that Haman was living in. They've completely switched spots. I don't know if I would want to live in the house of the guy who wanted to genocide my... Like, that would be like a Jew saying, I really would like to live in Hitler's house. I'm not a person who thinks that there's something about places. I would have no problem probably like buying a house really cheap of somebody who was murdered in the house, because if I can get really cheap, I don't care. But that one might be a little bit different for me, like, because it's one thing that some random person might have died in that house and you don't know and it's all cleaned up and remodeled and that kind of stuff and you're getting for dirt cheap. It's another thing when that guy you had a relationship with and he was pitted against you and he was trying to genocide you personally. That feels a little bit more like unsettling to live in that guy's house. Verse 3, Then Esther again spoke with the king, falling at his feet. And she wept and begged for her mercy. She might nullify the evil of Haman the Agite, which he had intended against the Jews. When the king extended to Esther the gold scepter, she rose and stood before the king. Now the king goes back to normal. He's like, Haman is dead, and now I've made recon- um, recompense, um, and I am given the state, and Mordecai is now happy. Let's just go back to drinking now. Okay, everybody's happy, right? Haman's dead. Mordecai's promoted. Mordecai's not going to die now. The gallows have been satisfied. Let's just go back to drinking. Life is good when we're drinking. But that just shows you how callous he is towards the Jews. All he cared about was Esther. That's all he cared about. But then Esther's like, but that's not what I ultimately wanted. I didn't want just Haman dead. I wanted my people saved. So she begins to beg him. Now, notice at this point, she, this is all she has is her emotions now. Because remember, ultimately, the only thing that she has in her court is that this bothers her. And the hope is that it will bother him because he cares about her. And so there's no rational argument that she can make that will get him to care about the Jews. There is no legality or clever courtroom language that can get him to care about this law that has been passed and to overturn it. Only thing that she has is his emotional connection to her. That's the only thing that she has. And so there are some people, it's like having a debate about politics or any kind of stuff on Facebook with people. Like, in this day and age, you're not going to convince anybody of anything with a debate on Facebook or logic in any kind of a way. But what you can get people to massively do in a heartbeat is if you appeal to emotions of fear or desire or that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying you should do that because <laughs> that's not biblical. And, but at the same time, there is a place for this at certain circumstances and unique individualistic cases, not mass media kind of a way but an individual case. Verse 5, she said, If the king is so inclined, if I have met with his approval, and if the matter is agreeable to the king, and if I am attractive to him, 
Let an edict be written rescinding those recorded intentions of Haman, the son of Hamath, um, Hamadath, the Agai, which he wrote in order to destroy the Jews who are throughout all the king's providences. For how can I watch the king, I will watch the calamity that will befall my people, and how can I watch the destruction of my relatives? I can't bear to watch this happen. So if I'm attractive to you, now that word can be interpreted any way that you want, then please, please do something. Verse 7, King Asherus replied to the queen, Esther, and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, I have already given Haman's estate to Esther, and he has been hanged on the gallows because he took hostile action against the Jews. Now you write in the king's name. So he's like, look, I already settled this matter. Shouldn't you be happy with this? I killed Haman, and you have his house. That's how he thinks. That's how he thinks. But he says, now you write in the king's name whatever in your opinion is appropriate concerning the Jews and seal it with the king's signet ring. Any decree that is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be rescinded. The same thing happens. Oh, yeah, yeah, you want to kill all these people, Haman. I'm too busy to do that. I've got a glass of wine to drink. Hey, here's my signet ring. You figure it out. So same thing, like, this is just too much for me to think about. I can't think of a way to countermand a, a law that cannot be overturned. So you know what? You just, you take the ring, you figure it out. Like, whatever you want, I'll be okay with. You figure out how to get this done. This is hurting my brain too much. I just want to drink. And that's the picture we get of him, is not like, let's, okay, let's hunker down. I mean, like in Hollywood movies, like they, they go up in the apartment room and they pull out all these blueprints and they, they all brainstorm together how, how the thief and the locksmith and the, the acrobat are all going to like mastermind this plan to get through things. And it's very, he's just like, no, 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 no. You just go off somewhere else and you figure it out. It's very anticlimactic. And the king's scribes were quickly summoned to the third month. And Mordecai's like, okay, I got the brains for this. And now I've got the power. On the 37th day, they wrote out everything that Mordecai instructed the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the officials in the provinces all the way from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to each province's own script and to each people in their own language and to the Jews according to their own script and their own language. And Mordecai wrote the name of King Asherus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And he then sent letters by courtier horses who rode royal horses that were very swift. Haman had plenty of time to get the edict out to the empire. The clock's ticking on them. So they write this out in every language that they can think of in the empire. And they put on the fastest horses that there are to send them out throughout the empire because they have to beat the 13th of Adar when the swords are all going to come out. Verse 11, the king thereby, thereby allowed the Jews who were in every city to assemble and to stand up for themselves, to destroy, kill, and to annihilate any army or whatever people or providence that should become their adversaries, including their women and children, and to confiscate their property. This was to take place on a certain day throughout all the provinces of King Ashuras, namely on the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar. A copy of the edict was to be presented as law throughout each and every providence and made known to all the people so that the Jews might be pre prepared on that day to avenge themselves from their enemies. Mordecai writes this law out. This is very fitting with the biblical law of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant said that except for these certain people groups of the Canaanites living in the land, 
you are not allowed to initiate an attack against any nation that surrounds you in any kind of a way. However, you may protect and defend yourself if that nation attacks you. But you may only drive them out of your land and back into their land, and that's it. You may not go into their land, and you may not take from them. All you're able to do is nullify the threat and the attack. That's what the law said. You're allowed to defend yourself. You're allowed to protect your property and your land. You're allowed to drive them out, but you cannot go over that. And that law says this, that anybody who comes into their house or comes into their personhood and threatens to kill them, the Jews are allowed to protect themselves in self-defense, even if killing them is necessary. And that's it. But notice Haman gave permission to plunder the Jews once they were dead. This law does not give the Jews the permission to plunder. Because remember, this law is not giving permission to genocide and wipe out the entire family. So there is a family that will be left behind. This is very fitting with the Mosaic law. This is literally, if you come and try to kill me with a sword, I'm allowed to protect myself and defend myself and kill you. The end. I'm not allowed to go after your family. I'm not allowed to go into your house. I'm not going to plunder you. I'm just defending myself. And that fits with the Mosaic law. And so this is the law that Mordecai writes. And it's only to happen on that day. Period. The 13th of Adar is the only permission that the Jews have for self-defense. Verse 14, The courtiers were riding the royal horses and went forth to the king's edict without delay. And the law was presented to Susa and the citadel as well. When Mordecai went out from his king's presence in purple and white royal attire with a large golden crown and a purple linen mantle, the city of Susa shouted with joy. For the Jews were there were radiant happiness, joyous honor throughout every providence in every city where the king's edict and the law arrived. The king's experienced happiness and joy, banquets and holidays, and many of the residents' peoples pretended to be Jews, pretended to be Jewish Jews because of their fear the Jews had overcome them. This is a huge reversal. No longer are they mourning or fasting. The Jews are now celebrating. No longer are their non-Jewish people ready to kill the Jews. They're now pretending to be Jews. Because they don't want to be killed. God is reversing everything. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the edict of the king and his law were to be executed. It was on that day that the enemies of the Jews had supposed that they would gain power over them. You must really hate somebody. When a law just went out through the land that the Jews are allowed to protect themselves, and not only protect themselves, the law says that all the officials are to pick up swords and join the Jews in defending themselves. And you're now going against that and thinking, I'm going to kill the Jews. The Jews assembled themselves in their cities throughout all the providence of the Asherahs and strike out against those who were seeking the harm. No one was able to stand before them, for the dread of them fell on all the peoples. All the officials of the providence and satraps and governors and those who performed the king's business were assisting the Jews for the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Mordecai was of high rank in the king's palace and word about him was spreading throughout all the providences. His influence continued to become greater and greater. The Jews struck all their enemies with their sword, bringing death and destruction. And they did as they pleased with their enemies. And Susa the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men who attacked them first. In addition, they also killed Parashadath, Dalphon, Ashaphatha, and Poratha, and Adaliah, and Eridatha, and the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadath, enemy of the Jews. But they did not confiscate their property. 
This is finally what should have happened back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The, king, the family of the Agites is now finally wiped out according to the command way back in 1 Samuel 15. That has now been fulfilled through Mordecai. Mordecai did what Saul could not do. But at the same time, they did not do anything more than that. They did not confiscate or plunder anything because the Mosaic law did not allow for that. Everything is kosher with the law here. Verse 11, On the same day the number of those killed in Susa and the citadel was brought to the king's attention. Then the kings to the queen Esther and Susa and the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and they've done the rest in the king's providence. What is your request? It shall be given to you. What other petition do you have? It shall be done. Everything is done now. God has miraculously stepped in. He has saved all the people. The Jews are not being annihilated. This is the end. End of story. All done. Praise be to God. Celebrations are in order. God has performed another Passover, basically. For whatever reason, the king, he must really like Esther. Because now he's like, "What, what else do you want? Okay, what else do you want? And Esther replied, If the king is so inclined, let the Jews who are in Susa be permitted to act tomorrow also and according to today's law, and let them hang the ten sons of Haman on the gallows. So the king issued orders for this to be done. A law was passed in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa then assembled on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they did not confiscate their property. Now this is what is ungodly and unbiblical. He asks her what she wants. The threat is over with. There's no reason for the Jews to need to protect themselves anymore. There's no law that puts them in danger anymore. The law that was written has protected them. It succeeded. They're protected. They're safe. The fear of the Jews has fallen on all the people in the nation. It is end of story. Law has been executed. Law has been fulfilled. All is said and done. But she now asks for a second day. Now, she can't ask for a second day for the entire empire because the horses can't get to the entire empire. She just wants more people who are anti-Jewish to die in the capital city. And there's no reason for this. She just says, hey, let's go out and kill anybody we think might still be against us. Even though they're not a physical threat anymore because there's no law that gives them that power. And if they do kill us, the law against murder will kill them instead. Like, there are laws in the Persian Empire that murder is punishable by death. Those laws will protect the Jews. This is an exceptional day because of another law. But that day is over with. So she's basically saying, please let us just go out and find people that we think who don't like us. And let's just kill them for another day. Give us an entire day. And then let's take the dead bodies of Haman's son and impale them on a pail so everybody can see what happens to them. She's doing the same thing that Haman did. Now, we don't know her motivation. We don't know what's deep in her gut that's driving her. Maybe it's power hungry now and she just wants to say, hey, do not mess with us. Maybe it's been, my people have been beaten down for the last several generations. We got beaten up by the Assyrians and we got beaten up by the Babylonians and we have been exiled and all this kind of stuff. And I haven't obeyed God and gone back to the land. I'm not trusting God to take care of me and gone back to the land. And now I just want people to know, do not mess with us Jews. I'm tired of being beaten up. 
And we see this a lot too. When people get beaten up or ridiculed or mocked a lot over and over and over again, they typically lash out. The, the Columbine shootings was exactly like that. They got mocked and ridiculed and bullied and they lashed out. And they went overboard and they're lashing out. It could be that. We have no idea what's driving her. But what we do know is this is ungodly. This is absolutely ungodly. She's asking the king for permission for a day for her to just go out and exterminate people that don't like her, just like Haman exterminated people that did not like him. This is not godly. If your family member asked for this, you'd be horrified. Do not confuse her being in the Bible with this being okay. In fact, most scholars believe that this is when she got the nickname Esther. Because the word Esther comes from Ishtar, or Anat, who was the goddess of love and war, who just basically would go out and kill people and couldn't control herself and would just keep killing until she was, like, tired of killing. Esther's definitely not that extreme, but she goes here. Now, notice that Mordecai's not behind this. Mordecai's completely out of the picture now. He does not ask for this. He does not write a law for it, and he doesn't do it. And his name is never mentioned. And so the rest of the Jews were throughout the providence of the kings assembled in order to stand up for themselves and to have rest for their enemies. They killed 75,000 of their adversaries, but they did not confiscate their property. All of this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and then the rest of the 14th day made it to the day of banqueting and happiness. Now notice they killed way more people. Only 500 people attacked them. And they kill them in defense. Now they're killing 75,000 people. This is extermination. This is extermination. And this is where she shows herself to be truly ungodly. And for whatever reason, the, we know, I know the Bible doesn't say this, but we've been around long enough to know that this is power. She's got a taste of power now. And now she's being driven in the same way that Haman was driven. This, when you're given power, if you're not in Christ, then ungodliness comes out. Mordecai has nothing to do with this at all. I think that's very enlightening that Mordecai is not mentioned here. Verse 18, but the Jews who were in Caesarea... Oh, where is it? Verse 20, then Mordecai comes back in. Mordecai wrote the matters down and sent letters to all the Jews who were throughout the providence of King Asherus and both near and far, to have them observe the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar, each year as the time when the Jews gave themselves rest from their enemies. The month then when their troubled was turned to happiness in their morning to holiday. These were the days of banqueting, happiness sending gifts to one another and providing for the poor. So the Jews committed themselves to continue what they had begun to do and to what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadoth, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised plans against the Jews to destroy them. He had cast Pur, the lot, in order to afflict and destroy them. But the matter came to the king's attention. The king gave written orders that Haman's evil intentions that he had devised against the Jews should fall on his own head. And he had his sons who were hanged on the gallows. For this reason, these days are known as Purim, which is the celebration of the law, after the name Pure. And therefore, because of the account found in this letter and what they had faced as regarded with what happened to them, the Jews established as a binding on themselves, their descendants, and all who joined their company, they should observe these two days without fail, just as written and at the appropriate time on the annual basis. 
These days were to be remembered and to be celebrated in every generation, in every family, every province, in every city, and the Jews were not fail, to fail to observe these days in Purim. The remembrance of them was not to be ceased among their descendants. Queen Esther comes along, daughter of Abitha and Mordecai. The Jews wrote a full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews in the 127 providences of the empire of Asherish. Words of true peace to establish these days of Purim in their proper times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established, just as they had established both of themselves and their descendants' matters pertaining to fasting and limitations. Esther's commands established these matters of Purim and matter was officially recorded. So there's a big debate that comes up. Years later, what's happening is a bunch of Jews all throughout the providence of Persia, they're celebrating Purim on the 14th day because they defended themselves on the 13th day and they rested on the 14th day. So for that time on, that's a day of celebration. And they're remembering that on the 14th. But the people in Susa, they... They killed on the 13th, and they killed on the 14th, so they didn't rest till the 15th, so they've been celebrating Purim on the 15th. And now there's a division between them. Oh, it's on the 15th. No, it's on the 14th. And the Jews are becoming divided. And so this extra day of killing is not only ungodly and unbiblical and murder, but it's now created a division among the Jews arguing over what day is the more holy day. Mordecai says, with his authority, in a very legal kind of a sense, explains, you know what, pick the day that you want and celebrate. All that matters is that we remember that we were delivered and that we're celebrating together as Jews. This is the day that the Jews united themselves together, defended themselves, and we were delivered. Celebrate it. This is not a time of division. And then Esther comes along with her authority as queen and says, both days are valid. So this final section of the chapter is basically just explaining that both days are okay. Just celebrate. Do not become divided. Do not become disunified. Just celebrate it. Chapter 10, verse 1. King Asherus then imposed forced labor on the land and the coastals of the sea. And now all the actions carried out under his authority and great achievements along with the exact statement concerning the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king promoted, are not written in the book of Chronicles, the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew was second only to the king Asherus, and he was the highest ranking Jew, and he was admired by his numerous relatives, and he worked enthusiastically for the good of his people, and was advocate for the welfare of all of his descendants. Now this is how the book ends. The book ends with a contrast, one final contrast. Oh, by the way, the king of Persia just went back to doing what he normally did, and he began to set up labor camps and forcing people to work doing things and building his empire. Once he passed the law, wiping all the Jews out, and yeah, God delivered him that kind of stuff, but that's now in his rear mirror, and he's moving on to the next oppressive thing that he's doing. Because this is what he does. He drinks and he callously oppresses people. That's what a, un, a, a, a man or a woman that is not filled with the Spirit of God, who has absolute power, does. Mordecai, in contrast, was respected by his people because he enthusiastically worked for their good. The king was drunken and oppressive. Mordecai enthusiastically worked for the good of his people. And this is the difference between someone who is connected to God and his law and someone who is not. This 
is what power does to us. This book is a satire against men and women who allow their unmet needs when they're not filled by the Spirit to drive them. And when they're given power, it usually leads to the destruction of people around them. We have to be very careful. Every human, when we are given power, we typically use it for our own gain. There's only one human ever who had absolute power and gave it all up, and it was Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is what the book is warning us against. We are given more insight into what power can do and what drives people to evils when they're given power, and that no one is without exception in this book than any other book. And we're given insights into Haman. And what it's saying is, do the minute, this, I've never forgotten this statement. I had a mentor tell me this. The minute you say, oh, I can never do that, you've immediately set yourself up to do that, because when you think, oh, I can never do that, you do not put you do not put fences and boundaries and defense mechanisms in your life to protect you from doing that. When you think, oh, I could violate somebody, I could steal, I could murder somebody, I could just yell and scream and destroy somebody, I could do this, then you create accountability partners and you create measures and prayer and things to protect yourself from doing that because you get what your heart is really like. And you never know what you'll do until you're in that situation. And, and, and when you're given power, then it becomes easier. And this is what the Bible is warning against. We need to be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Not by the flesh and not by the might of man, but by the Spirit of God. Because even men and women after God's own heart can be corrupt with power. And our only hope is daily to throw ourselves before the feet of Christ and say, not my will be done, but yours. Remember, even Jesus, he was tempted to take the power and not go to the cross. But yet he said, not my will, your will be done. And he gave up the power for us. And that's what we've been called for. And so this book is warning of what power can do to us. But it's also warning you that this world is not necessarily always filled with evil-intentioned people like Haman. Sometimes they're just disconnected, callous people like the king of Persia. But when people, either way, when they're given power, that becomes the fertile soil for evil to happen. It doesn't matter whether your intentions are evil or they're just disconnected and callous and apathetic. That produces the fertile soil for evil to happen. And so we are called to actually love and care and guard ourselves and surrender to Christ and enthusiastically work for the good of all of our people. And only when you are having that in your mind, or as Paul says, Christ-centered and heaven-oriented, can power not corrupt you, can power not take over you, and that you don't throw other people to the slaughter for the sake of what you want. Small or large. And this is the book that's warning of that. And thank God that we are not left to just the device of the law. We now have the Holy Spirit in us to 
give us the ability to actually be that kind of example of Christ and to actually have the desire to be that example of Christ to people. But the other thing the book is saying is that no matter what, God will honor his promises. He will protect his people and he will deliver them and redeem them no matter what the odds are because this is his character, this is his promise, and this is what he's committed to is redeeming us despite all odds. Yahweh, we just thank you so much for who you are, the amazing God that you are. We thank you that you are not afraid to reveal our true selves to us and the dangers of what we can become to ourselves and other people when we are devoid of you and filled with power. I pray that we would take this and seriously look in the mirror that you just presented to us and that we'd be able to go home in meditation and ask, what is it that I desire when I'm not in Christ? What is it that I find my significance in when I'm not rooted in my identity in Christ? What is it that I might be capable of then when I'm given power or when I become disconnected from other people? And then allow us to surrender ourselves to you, to ask for guidance for the Holy Spirit, and to go to our fellow believers and put things in place that will aid us to be rooted in you and our identity in you and to protect ourselves from being unfettered. And I also pray that we would go to you knowing that when we do feel weak and we feel like nothing we can do can actually change and we're feeling powerless on the reverse end of things and we feel like everything is falling apart and the world is a dangerous an uncertain place with evils cropping up everywhere, threatening to strangle us, that we would also be reminded by this book that even when we are powerless, greater is he who is in us than he is in the world. And over and over and over again, you have proven yourself in this book and church history and the lives of the people around us and in our own lives that you will always honor your promises and you'll redeem us and deliver us despite all odds. And yet it may not always be comfortable, but it will always end in our salvation deliverance because that's the God that you are and that you are greater and more loving than anything else out there. In Jesus' name, amen.